We are needy people, and uh, we couldn't be in a better passage today to uh, think biblically about our need and God's sufficiency uh, in that. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote and recorded a song in 1989. Some of you don't even know who that guy is. It's okay. I'm secure in that. Beautiful, beautiful song. Moved me greatly. It's called More to This Life. Here's the chorus. But there's more to this life than living and dying. More than just trying to make it through the day. More to this life, more than these eyes alone can see. And there's more than this life alone can be. I imagine that every person in this room, uh, we could probably spend hours talking about the more that we would love to have out of this life. And, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Like we, we've just been saying, we're needy, broken people. We can always find a place where we need more. And uh, I wonder what more life would look like to you this morning. I wonder if you'd be willing to even consider that. Because see, it's a vulnerable place to say, I need more and to ask God for that and then to leave that in his hands. And to trust that he knows what's best. That he can meet us in our place of need. And he can provide what we need, not always what we want. It's a delicate place to be. As we get into Acts chapter 3, we're going to bump into a lot of people who want more. All kinds of different more And uh, they're looking in all kinds of different places. And uh, it's a precious thing to see God break into those needy places and do a life-changing work that we get to witness today as we get into the Word. So if you're not there, uh, turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. And we're told by Luke that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That was three in the afternoon. And uh, we learned, I think two weeks ago, uh, but in chapter 2, verse 46, that this was part of just the normal activity of the church. Uh, One of the things that they would do is they would continue to go to the temple to worship and to pray and to do kind of to do church in a sense with each other, um, that was just a normal practice. But for Peter and John, I think part of what this passage is going to do is this is more than a trip to the temple. And I think even going there for them was different now than maybe it had ever been in their lifetime. I think they're going there with fresh perspective, fresh expectations. They are attentive to what God might want to do in and through them as they go into that place. Now, religious leaders weren't the only ones that would hang around the temple. We're introduced to another character in verse 2. So go with me there. It says, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate 
to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This guy has a story, just like you have a story, just like I do. But I, I think it's important for us to recognize that this, is, this guy is more than a man who's just down on his luck. He's not just having a bad day or a bad week or even a bad year. This guy's life, most of us would say, is utterly miserable. And if we don't get that, then I don't know that we get a lot of what we're supposed to take away from this story that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decided to record. So let's think for a minute about this guy's life. We're told he was born without use of his legs, but we'll find out in chapter 4 that it's been over 40 years that he's been in that condition. I want you to imagine him as a child asking mom and dad why his legs don't work like all of the other kids. He can't run, jump, climb like all of his buddies. Probably teased for his condition. Kids do that. Big people do that. We know from the disciples' question, this is recorded in John 9, that something of this severity was usually attached to sin. So they asked the question, this was about a man born blind. They're like, who sinned? Like, how could anyone be in this condition for all of their life unless they sinned or somebody else did? Like, no other explanation. So... What do people think about this guy every day as they're walking into the temple seeing him crippled? Probably thinking the same thing. And he knows it. What about when this guy got to the age with his peers that he could marry? I wonder if that was even a possibility for him. I wonder if there was anybody that was interested. His existence consisted of being carried everywhere he went. And daily, he was begging at the dusty steps of a temple that he could not enter. He wasn't allowed to enter. Think about his point of view from the ground, looking all day long at everybody else's appendages that work just fine. And he is just stuck there. I think his dignity was probably chipped away to nothing. So just to survive, he does the only thing he can do, and that is he sits at a gate called, this, this is the nickname for it, the beautiful gate. How ironic that a man who nobody, nobody thought was beautiful, he sits at the beautiful gate every day and asks people for alms 
the literal interpretation of that word is mercy. Every day. Peter and John come walking by and he asks them to contribute like like they do everybody else. And uh, little did he know he would get more than he ever imagined. He has a defining moment with those two men and it begins with more than an impersonal encounter. Now think about again all of the people that are passing by. How many of them do you think locked eyes with him? Or how many of them, as they're walking by, conveniently look the other way? Just so they don't have to face the brokenness that's right in front of them. As they're going into a place and worshiping a God that addresses brokenness in people's lives. Peter and John did the unexpected. They engaged this man in a very personal way and actually commanded him to look back at him. Look look at uh, verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I'm sure that startled him. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. I'm sure he interpreted their... Uh, relational kindness as some potential uh, prosperity or generosity. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And if I'm the lame guy, I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, seriously? You're one of those guys. You don't have any cash on you but you got something else you can give me. He's like, dude, I'm here for one thing. If if you got change in your pocket, drop it in the bucket. We know and Peter knew that what he and John wanted to give the man was more than what the world has to offer. And that man believed that the best he could hope for was what the world had to offer. Look at what Peter does. Verse 6. He said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Whoa. Now, the name, the name of Jesus Christ, it's not like a little magic formula. It's not a rabbit's foot. Not something you just kind of throw that out there and it makes everything go like you want it to. What Peter's doing here is he is identifying the power behind his gift, the source of what he has to offer. So he's, he's going to give this man healing, but the healing isn't really the gift. It's the healer. That's what he's trying to get this guy to see. But he starts with this healing. And the crippled man probably was stunned. He's like, excuse me, did you say rise up and walk? I haven't done that in ever, (laughs) 40 years. I wouldn't know the first thing about walking. And I do wonder if Peter might have known. I mean, I know he knew this guy because he went in and out of the temple all the time. I wonder... Commentators kind of speculate here. Do you remember that moment in Peter's life 
when Jesus brought him out on the water and he's walking and he gets terrified and he starts to sink and he knows he's going down. And we're told Jesus reached out his hand and raised him up. So he gets to do that for this guy. He grabs his hand, look at verse 7, took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What a sight. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? It's actually a cool fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Listen to this description as Isaiah is describing the restoration uh, of God for the people of Israel. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Love that. When he tasted the redemptive, restorative power of God, he couldn't contain himself. Now, keep in mind, for this man who was born lame, I mean, he's doing a lot of things that probably there's a lot of people that are a little uncomfortable with, right? Hey, ho, hey, this is the temple. Very quiet, very somber, For him, it's more than routine religion. He's not going in there to check a box. He's not just going through the motions. It's just not part of his daily thing. He is going in this place to meet God Almighty and to worship him because of what he has done in his life. That's different than routine religion, isn't it? I love it as he's entering. It's like, it's like he's the only one there. He is totally unconscious of anybody else. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's just heading on in there, leaping, probably yelling. He's praising God, walking around, so refreshing. It did make me think, I wonder uh, just you know how easy it is for us to take this for granted and to come in here just kind of business as usual and to forget what we're doing here, (laughs) who we are, and who we're praising and worshiping and thinking about. In many ways, this lame man is a great metaphor or illustration of humanity. Now, think about it spiritually. Think about the descriptions that we get of him. All of humanity is spiritually crippled from birth. That's the idea of depravity. We all begin our lives begging for the best this world has to offer, don't we? Right? Don't we start there? We look to see what the world can give us. And and if and when we finally realize that it can never satisfy, we look beyond this world. And any who are restored gain new life by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the more. 
And then those who are healed gain peace with God and are invited into community with God and with his people. With that in mind, I want you to notice what happens to the people around him. Okay, God is certainly doing a work through Peter and John in the life of the lame man, but there's a crowd. Look at verse 9. Now all the people saw him, that is the guy that's been healed, walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So they're in shock. I wonder if in seeing him, they, they thought, could God do something like that in my life? Now, my need might not seem as obviously great, but we all have needs. And if God can do that for him, I wonder if he could do something for me. Don't you think that would just be the natural thing to to wonder after seeing that? Christianity goes far beyond routine religion to a place of reformation. Just absolute transformation inside and out. It's a process. But when we see that transformation taking place in somebody else's life, we naturally wonder if the same thing could happen for us. And I think that's by design. I think that's the beautiful gift of community. If we're able to talk about the activity of God in us, we prompt others to go after the same thing. And sometimes we're on the proclaiming side of that, and sometimes we're on the hearing side of that. But it's all necessary. For sure, we can say, that this scene is more than a miracle. It is that, for sure. But the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put this in the book of Acts right here was to say far more than God can cause a man crippled from birth to walk. Far more. This is the first of 14 miracles that are included in the book of Acts. And it made way for a moment of truth that Peter has for this crowd. Look at verse 11. While he, that is the man, clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So now they're inside the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter sees an opportunity. You know, this is a spectacular moment, right? So you've got all these people and they've seen this guy. We're told they recognized him. So they are literally running to get close and find out what is going on here. And Peter's like, another opportunity for a sermon. Why not? So these people gather together and in some ways you would sort of expect Peter, I mean, this is a a celebratory moment. This guy is is as happy as he's ever been in his whole life, I'm sure. But rather than just celebrating the healing of this man, he goes right to Jesus. And he goes right to the crowd and says, hey, I got some bad news for you. And he begins to lay out what they've done. Now, he starts with this question, and it's a rhetorical question, asking essentially, why are you so interested? And why do you think we did this in our own power? But I think what he's asking them is, what does your captivation with this spectacle tell you about you? Why do you think you're so interested in this. What more do you want that you think this guy got? There's obviously much more to this miracle going on. And I would just say, I I think God is graciously revealing himself to people who just weeks before did everything that Peter (laughs) mentioned. Isn't that kind of him? to to do something that would get their attention and then speak the truth to them in love. The Holy Spirit invites Peter to bring the miracle maker Jesus in the forefront of everybody's mind. And and here are some things that I think he wants them to consider. This, This is just kind of rehashing this moment of text here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified Jesus. And God doesn't glorify men, right? He glorifies God. So God glorifies Jesus, but in contrast, they delivered Jesus over to Pilate knowing that he was innocent. Not only that, they denied that he was Christ and king, and they claimed that he misled them and told them not to pay their taxes. So they just straight up lied. Then they rejected the holy and righteous one, which is a title of God, and freed a man guilty of insurrection and murder. That's Barabbas. It's like... Hey, guys, this was just a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? And then he wraps up, believe it or not, you killed, you killed the author of life. God raised him up. He's fine. But you were instrumental in his death. Despite all that, he is risen And we are witnesses. 
we were there. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And that story is not going to change. So in summary of this first section, the healing they witnessed was more than a miracle. It was irrefutable evidence that they got everything wrong about Jesus. Peter and John performed the miracle in his name because he alone has the power and authority to do such a thing in a person's life. Now, having said all that, Peter isn't done. He continues in verse 17. It's like, now in light of all of that, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So he does something interesting here. He first says, he explains why from, a, from an earthly perspective, those, those things happen. He said, you acted in ignorance, which is not anything different than what Jesus said on the cross. Remember, he said, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So there's a, a level of ignorance here. And then he says, God fulfilled what he foretold. So this was going to happen no matter what anybody else said or did. It had to happen because this is God's redemptive plan for humanity. Now, with both of those things, they explain some some realities, but they don't acquit the crowd. They're still guilty. So, he moves on to say in light of that, here's what you need to do to change your future. Repent and turn back. That's the means of change. In order that, and here's the result, your sins may be blotted out. That's one thing. And your future, which is all of the other things mentioned, may be the refreshing presence of the Lord. Now, repentance two weeks ago, I defined it this way. Turn from your own way to the only way that leads to life. Turn from your own way to the only way that leads to life. So he says, you've got to repent. And what will happen as you do that is your sins are blotted out. That's a once and for all. You're forgiven. You're right with God. You're justified. That's the word that's used to describe that. But then everything else in verses 20 and 21 seem to look forward. He talks about times of refreshing and then Jesus being sent from heaven, which means he would have ascended already. And then times of restoring, which seems to be like when all things are made new. So what we have here is Peter pointing to the kind of the final act of God to make forgiveness a possibility. And then this future that they are on the front end of, I mean, certainly there's been times of refreshing and times of restoration. That's begun to happen, but it's not completed And it won't be completed until Jesus is sent back. 
to make all things new. So he's pointing to a future, and their decision in the present is going to determine what happens to them in the future. So we could summarize all of that this way. He's saying, repent so that you can be restored and not rejected when Jesus returns. Okay? That's the big idea right there. And it suggests to us, just as it suggested to them in the first century, I realize 2,000 years have passed, but a time of refreshing and restoration still lies ahead. We are closer to it, but we're in a very similar place as these first people were when they heard this announcement. We don't know when it's scheduled to happen. Only God the Father knows that. We only know that it is certain and it's been spoken of since the days of Moses, which takes us to verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's taken from Deuteronomy 18. That was certainly a word through Moses for the people of Israel in the wilderness. But Peter takes those very same words and applies them in a New Testament context to say there is a prophet, only one. And that is Jesus. And you better listen to him or you're going to end up on the wrong side of things. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So this moment, chapter 3, the book of Acts, way more than a miracle. That's just the beginning of it. And then it opens up this opportunity to think about what is God doing in all of history and where do we find ourselves in that? He helped them to see that God is fulfilling his redemptive plan. It's going just as he intended. And just as he said he would do through Moses and Samuel... Jesus is the prophet and servant that they spoke of. And now there's a a person to put with those titles. He is a descendant of Abraham. God blessed Abraham, right, to be a blessing to the world. He blessed Israel, a nation. He formed it and blessed it so that they could be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jesus came. He is the instrument of blessing. Without him, there isn't one. And you and I, if we have entrusted our lives to Christ, then we have received the blessing and we become a part of his redemptive plan to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That is God's plan. There isn't a plan B 
until Jesus returns for a time of refreshing and a time of making all things new, a time of restoration. So, like them, there's a choice to be made. And there are some differences here, so I want to be clear. For that crowd in particular, Peter said, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He was basically saying, currently, you guys are opposed to God. And unless you listen to the servant and entrust your life to him, you're in trouble. But as always, we're left to apply the word in our contemporary context. So it's possible there could be someone here today and you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. So that is your choice. That's your opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. You can say to Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sin, and I know that your death on the cross is the only answer. Will you forgive me and restore me, make me new and right with God? That's your choice today. But for the rest of us, do we stop listening to the servant or to the prophet after we come to Christ? No. We spend the rest of our lives listening to him so that we can be in alignment with his heart in his activity, his work here and abroad. There's some sobering words in Luke 11, verse 23. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, I certainly don't want to be against the Lord. And I know that I can live my life in such a way that I am. Doesn't mean I'm not saved. We believe in eternal security. But I want to be fully aligned with what God is doing. And I want him to use me in every possible way that he can. I don't want to be one who scatters. I want to be one who gathers. Who is about this beautiful, redemptive plan of God. I imagine that you do too. So let's ask some questions as we get to the end of chapter 3. And it is interesting, we're, we're now, as we go into chapter 4, we're going to move into a, a segment of conflict. You know, it said in chapter 2 that they had favor with all the people, remember that? Those days are over. Now the people are going to turn on the church, and it's going to be massive opposition. So, with this moment in mind, Let's think about, you know, for Peter and John, I think this was a reaffirmation of God's work in and through them. Those were guys just like us. They're just people. And don't you know that as God was working through them and as Peter was preaching and doing all that, don't you think that was good for his own heart, his own soul to be used by God in that way? So I think it was a a reaffirmation for them. For the uh, lame beggar, Certainly a transformative miracle in his life. But that made way for a whole new life that he never ever imagined would be possible. 
What a beautiful thing. And then for the crowd, a point of decision. Would they dig in their heels of deception? Or would they turn from their own way to the only way that leads to life? How can, here's your question for today, how can you respond to this miracle? So you've witnessed this miracle. I know you didn't see it with your eyes. But because God's word is trustworthy and reliable, you have witnessed this miracle today as if you were there. It's that certain. So how can you respond to this miracle and experience more of the life God intends for you? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you some insight about that. What does it look like for you to take this reality and apply it to your life? And perhaps adjust, respond, whatever it might be. So take a moment, prayerfully consider that, and then I will pray for us and close. heaven. Um, We finish where we started this morning. We are needy people. And there is uh, more that we do want in this life. Um, Would you help us to see what, what that really is? And help us to orient our lives around the giver of life. We don't want to be crazed spectators of your activity. We want to be right in the middle of it. We want to be your hands and your feet. So help us to walk in the miracle of newness of life today and every day thereafter. Change us as you please.